mean, if I were to break it down, I'd say 10 to 20% of acquisitions. The biggest challenge, people get stuck in the analysis phase. Like literally they get stuck in analysis paralysis. So that's why the hot seat and a lot of the questions that come up in the sessions are going to be doing analysis type stuff. Like how do I calculate this thing? How do I estimate repairs that way? How do I calculate comps? How do I put it all together? We use a thing called deal check. So runyournumbers.com is our like affiliate link, but we use that basically to send people and that's going to be a one source of truth. So every deal we look at in the hot seat goes through that system. And now I know when I'm looking at it, I see what the levers are. What's the LTC, the loan to value, loan to cost? And what's the LTV, the loan to value? What's the interest rate looking like? What's, is this a burr? Are we doing a purchase, renovate, and then refinance it later after we rent it out? Or are we just going to do a rental right off the bat? Like those kinds of things. It's Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, we're fired up today. We have Douglas J. Beck from JDL Ventures. This guy got into the game in 2015, left his W-2 for the world, which I know most of us out there, if you haven't done it yet, are so excited to get out of your W-2. He's done over a couple hundred wholesale deals, 50 fix and flips as he does private lending. So he's got this thing cornered. He does some coaching. So Douglas, thank you so much for being with us today. And if you'll take us in as always sure. into your craziest story you've had so far in your real estate journey. Well, thank you, Matt. First off, thanks for having me, man. Um, yeah, like we were talking about, you know, kind of before, it, you know, my uh, my journey has been interesting. There's been a lot of different stories and scenarios. And um, I'm from New Jersey originally. So um, an interesting fact about New Jersey, when you get into like the urban markets, is that a lot of properties have underground storage tanks, right? So USTs, and there's actually a whole business around oil tank sweeping and soil contamination, remediation, all that kind of stuff. So one of the stories that came to mind when you asked me that question is, uh, we had a property in Newark, New Jersey. It was a three family and I had a business partner. He was my first business partner on flips. And we did our first five flips together. my first five flips together, his, whatever he had many done at that point. Um, but the property we bought, you know, we looked at it from just a perspective of like simple value add, nothing too crazy. We weren't rebuilding really anything. Um, we did a underground storage tank sweep and we knew that there was one underground. I was the minority stakeholder in that partnership and I took his guidance because he had experience. I'm at this guy's, you know, at the mercy of his decision-making essentially. My role was to bring the deal and basically bring some of the capital partners that, that came into that deal. Um, but he made the decision to just like let it go and not worry about the oil tank. Whereas I didn't know the impact that that could bring. I mean, I knew kind of about it, but I didn't know to what extent. And so he said, oh, we'll just remove it when we get done with the project. There'll be no problem. We'll put it back together, but he's fine. So we had this idea and this, this thought of like, well, what could go wrong would be that there is some there is some leaking of the tank and it could be contaminating the soil. And we knew that it could be you know thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. Um, it all kind of worked out okay, but it was super scary, like especially in the early phase of my fix and flip business. And this guy didn't really care. He was kind of like a very aggressive and still is a very aggressive gentleman that just does, you know, larger deals too, but those smaller deals. And when he did all these deals, like he just like kind of just like, I don't know, he like you hear the same like a bull in a china shop. Like my business partner, my title company says that sometimes about me. This guy's like to the next level where he just didn't really care. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm gonna get it done no matter what. And that's cool. But, you know, we just, we, we, what is that saying? You just, you know, kind of by the seat of your pants kind of thing, because when we had the tank removed, of course, there was leaking of, the, of this tank and the tank wasn't that large. It was just enough. It was a three family house, probably about 3000 square feet. Um, but basically that one tank, you know, might've let out however much oil that was enough for a few thousand dollars of remediation, but it could have been 50, a hundred, 200,000, who knows? So, you know, case in point, that was the last time I didn't have the tank removed, you know, before I buy the property or negotiate something with the seller that I can make, that can have a contingency or whatever, if there's an issue, that kind of thing. And then I actually found a, a tank removal company in New Jersey 
um, which I'm happy to share with anybody, any listeners, you know, directly or whatever you want to do there. As far as a link, this gentleman offers one of the few that I know that offers a thing where like you pay them for the um, the tank sweep, you pay them for uh, you pay them for a removal, and you actually have a test done, a test, a soil test done, a bearing test before you remove the tank. What he'll do is he'll check around the tank, but not only will he do that, he'll do extra soil bearing tests, and he has confidence to a certain extent where he feels comfortable guaranteeing that if there is any actual contamination, he'll remove the tank uh, and and deal with the actual the uh, tank uh, soil remediation on free, free of charge. Basically, you pay like a thousand bucks, fifteen hundred bucks, whatever it was, a little extra like an insurance plan almost, which was very unconventional. So I found that guy in the midst of all this and haven't had to use him since for that purpose. But, you know, just knowing that that's available, anyone who's in a market that has underground storage tanks, first things first, I definitely recommend tank sweep and obviously you know, check the soil, do a soil test, but then underneath the tank, sometimes there's a, a leak from neat, beneath the tank, of course, now you have a problem with the soil. And if it gets into the water system and things like that, or neighbor's property, you have a bigger problem. So just be aware of that. Yeah. Um, you know, down here in Florida, we got other situations like sinkholes and stuff like that to worry about, but that's just a- Every area's got their problems, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you had mentioned this guy's super aggressive. And you reference yourself as being aggressive and he's next level. Yeah. So I look at guys like Grant Cardone and I think like that's a level of aggressive. What do you think his aggressiveness did in terms of helping his business? And like how much aggressive do you think is like maybe the optimal amount of aggressiveness in business? I mean, yeah, I'm sure it got him opportunities and, you know, got him to be able to grow. But I'm in the middle of all that. Obviously, it's like the concept of failing forward to some extent, although in some people's minds, especially like, I don't know, your listeners are probably mixed between, I would think, newer and some experienced people as well. Then I find that the newer that somebody is at anything, not just real estate investment, but the newer they are in business or in investing in something, whatever the asset might be, it's like, well, I'm a little bit cautious, right? So this guy's obviously been around for a few decades doing development deals. And so he has experience handling large projects, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in the cases that he's worked on as a developer. But the thing is like that, that experience, I think honestly for him might've got him, might've got him an unfair or unreasonable amount of confidence because actually in the fix and flip space, you're not taking empty land and putting new stuff on it. You're actually taking the parts stuff that already exists, obviously. And so we had a lot of challenges in fact, because he would not estimate correctly and he would have issues where the construction went over time and over budget and things like that. So actually, I think there's a point where he broke that threshold of aggression to become more like negligence in some ways and, and, and issues where, you know, probably went too far. That being said, to kind of dial it back, I would say, you know, it's like risk reward, right? Like you measure risk versus reward. So if there's like obviously an area of risk, like obviously buying properties, like Grant Cardone mentioned, so buying you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of property sounds risky for a lot of people. But if you have a system and a process and you have a team and it's reliable, obviously it's a lot less risky. So it's about mitigating the risk though. And I felt like in this particular, to kind of compare and contrast, the gentleman I was talking about, you know, great guy, awesome, awesome guy. He's a father, he's a husband and like that. Like he's, he's a respectable guy. But I think that the risk he took was disproportionate with the mitigation factors that he had in place to, to mitigate those risks. And we kind of knew what they were, too. So it's kind of even worse. You know, like you know what the risk mitigator is or gator, risk mitigators, things you could do to avoid that issue from being a problem. Like we can't just like move away from it, pretend it doesn't exist. we got to address it. You know what I mean? So um, that's kind of my two cents on it. I think, you know, I'm definitely all about taking on risk to, to grow and to get that reward because it's like. I tell people you're basically when you're buying real estate, it's like you're buying a certain level of risk, whether even the property stabilized, you still have the risk of a tenant not paying. If it's a rental property, you still have the risk of whatever can go wrong, taxes going up. If it's an HOA, the assessments can be put on, like whatever happens. So 
but I'm willing to take on that risk for the ops, you know, ideal return, right? Whatever that return looks like. It's a question of how are those two things balanced is kind of the thing I think we need to yeah. look at as investors. Totally. And take us back to the beginning. So, you know, a lot of times people feel it's really risky to invest in real estate at all. How do they do it? How do they use money? What was your start in real estate like? Uh, my start in real estate was the least, the least risky model, which is the wholesale flip, right? So the assignments of contract. Now, risky, I would say least risky with a, with a double quote maybe because it depends how you measure risk. Like financial risk, least risky. Time risk, excessive, honestly. You know, especially in the beginning when you don't really know what you're doing. The amount of time that it takes, I'm sure folks that are listening that have this experience of trying to find their first deal probably can relate to this. When you're sending out direct mail, or you're doing pay-per-click, you're doing SEO, you're spending lots of money, you're putting time in to just to get leads that you think are deals. Like there's not a there's not an equalizer of like, lead equals deal. It's like usually, you know, 98% of the leads you're going to talk to if you're doing direct to seller are going to be not a deal. You know what I mean? Most of the time they're not going to be a deal. So that amount of time I chose to do some of that in the beginning, not knowing. So my start was basically about six months or so. The first six months I was part of a coaching mentorship program and these guys you know, know what they're doing, but their model just, they were out of the West coast. I was on the East coast. I still am on the East coast, but I was in New Jersey. At least in my market, you know, that model was already saturated. There was 60, 70, 60, 70 people, or I should say it this way. There was sellers that were telling me they were getting 50, 60, 70 postcards from, from what they thought was the same person, which was me. And they were screaming at me, stop sending so many postcards. I'm so sick of seeing it. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I'm only sending you one or two maybe a month. You know, I'm not saying 60. So that was some indication that there's an oversaturation of people doing the same thing. And I quickly you know, realized that I had to find another way. So then I moved into the joint venture wholesale model, which is where we actually lined up with people that already had a deal. So that's a big part of our story. Like as far as a pivot point, you asked me about that before, I think a little bit around like, how do we, you know, one of the major transitions was joint venturing, not just on the fix and flip space, but also on the wholesale space. So, you know, we made that decision. I can tell you the story if you'd like about the first deal or whatever, you know, whatever. Yeah. Kind of yeah tell us. So. So, I mean, yeah, like imagine, which I'm sure, again, folks that are newer and trying to wholesale, especially because that's got multiple parts. You get the acquisitions part and you got the dispositions part for, you know, sourcing the seller, dealing with all that, the deal analysis, the numbers, the offer making, et cetera, getting the contract. And ultimately now you have a contract. Like, that's the thing. A lot of people are saying like, oh, well, you got the contract. You won. Now you're like going to make money. Well, only if you could disposition that contract and sell it right for a number higher than what you have under contract for. And so with us, I mean. You know, like I said, we had a lot of challenges in the beginning on acquisitions because I was dumping all this money, spending all this time talking to people who didn't want to talk to me or my company. And they're just like, leave me alone, you know, go get lost. And I, I'm used to like, I understand rejection. I'm used to that in the sense that I've done direct sales and stuff like that before. I know that rejection exists heavily when you're doing out, cold outreach and things like that. But at the end of the day, when it came down to getting a deal, I'm like, well, let me just take all that out the way. And let me, and I start having these thoughts like, well, who already has, who already has deals that they're trying to sell? And how can I add value to what they have? And I didn't say those exact words, but I said, like, how is everyone else doing this? You know what I mean? Like, how are these guys doing it? And like, I just made a few phone calls. I'm like, hey, this guy, John. John had a deal in Hillside, New Jersey, which, you know, it's not in the middle of nowhere, but it's in an urban part of, like, Essex County, I think, or Union County. And by the city, like, about 30, 45 minutes away from New York City. And I don't know what properties are worth there. I don't know what the value is necessarily, but I know he has a deal under contract he's trying to sell. How do I know that? Because I'm on his list. So I decided to opt into his list to see what he's got, to see kind of what's going on in that market and get connection made. And then I also know that he buys at that time fix and flips. I don't know if he is still, but at that time, like eight years ago, he was still fixing and flipping too. So I reached out to John. I said, hey, listen, John, here's where I'm at, man. I've been trying to get my first deal done for the past six months, doing this, this, and that with all the acquisition stuff. It looks like you have a great opportunity here. 
is there any way I can work together with you to add value to your deal and see how we can make some money together? I don't know how, but is there a way? And he goes, well, he's like, the best way you can do is bring me an investor. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, if you just bring me someone who wants to buy the deal, he's like, obviously I can pay you part of my fee so we could split the fee or whatever. I'm like, really? I was like, that sounds too simple. He's like, well, it's not that simple. It is that simple. It's not that complicated. You just find someone that you know, and if you, they pull the trigger and it's not a contract and we close, whatever I make, I'll just find a split with you that makes sense. I'm like, well, what kind of split are we talking about? And he's like, well, probably 50-50. I'm like, 50-50? I was like, how much are you going to make in this deal? He goes, probably 10, 15 grand. So you're telling me, all I have to do is find an investor that wants to buy your contract. And basically, I can make half of what you're going to make in the deal. And I don't do any upfront work. And he goes, yeah. I'm like, all right, John, let me get on this. And I look and I'm saying to myself, this is crazy. Like, I've been trying to hit, you know, pounding the pavement, trying to get the sellers. And here I am. I know that my strength is, I think at the time, at least networking. And it still is to this day. I network a lot. I had like half, I had like 500 people on my list, my email list, I had people that were asking me for deals that were looking at what I was sending, which I had some contracts to be fair. I did get some properties under contract early on and I was trying to market those, but I realized I didn't know what I was doing with the numbers. I was way off. So here I am sending out basically nonsense to people that want to buy, but they didn't have any ability because it wasn't a good deal versus here's a guy that's already done, you know, who knows how many dozens or hundreds of deals at that time has a deal that's in his hand that just needs some additional extension of help to get this thing out to the right people. So I'm saying, wait a second. So I got this network. I remember sitting in my brother-in-law's house in Pennsylvania, distinctively sitting in his office. First time I ever did this, I, I crafted an email. I took what John had sent me. I made it a little bit pretty, put some different details into it. I went into a what's called an option contract with John first. So I had some legal rights to actually do this with him. You could do a JV. Let's, can... let's, let's break into that. Yeah. So you went into an option contract. Explain that a little more. So the option contract that we used was basically the option to purchase the real estate or the or the option to buy whatever asset. In this case, it was actually the, the contract that has the contract. He had the contract to buy the underlying asset, which is the real estate. So, so, so just to expand that out a bit. So he gets the original contract with the seller. Right. And so by having an option, when you bring your buyer, you're exercising your option. So it's not like this weird, like you bring the buyer and then he goes, all right, Douglas, like, bye-bye. I'm yeah. going to take it. Right. You know, I'm, I'm actually the contract buyer. Yeah, I'm, as an option holder, like I'm the contract buyer, but I have the right to execute my option. So if I don't execute my option, like I sign the option, but it says like, this is just an agreement. It's kind of like an LOI almost. And I think, you know, kind of generally based on how you explained it, but maybe the audience doesn't know. Like, essentially it's like, hey, I could buy this property or I could buy this asset, this contract, but I don't have to. If I choose to execute it, that's on me to decide, but I'm telling you that I would be considering it under these circumstances. And so like, yeah, literally our now, now to ask more questions, yeah. generally options mean you're the only person. Now this guy probably want to keep his options open, yeah. quote unquote. So how is he keeping his options open while giving you an option? Non-exclusive option. So we don't have, it's not, an, he has the right to still continue to bring his deal to whoever he wants to bring it to. It's kind of a game of speed and resources of who we have in our network. And so, yeah, I mean, this is kind of like, a, I would say a, a rather untapped focus area for a lot of investors that are trying to get into wholesale. It's also kind of a double-edged sword though, because frankly, again, respectfully, I say this, a lot of people don't have any idea of what they're doing yet. And it's okay, you can learn, but you don't want to just randomly throw together deals and hope that because you put a bunch of option contracts out there, you can start making money. You got to have a process and a system, but mind you, I was six months into this had a lot of the stuff I was getting coached and mentored along the way. I knew kind of generally what had to happen, but I just was missing a piece as far as the acquisitions. But yes, the option is non is a exclusive option or non-exclusive option. In this case, ours are non-exclusive, which means that the other side can continue to bring their deal and do whatever they want to do with it. We have a certain window of time. In this case, I think it was two weeks, maybe a week or two weeks, whatever it is, kind of like an inspection period would be almost in a way. 
And then I, my company, JDL Ventures, was the option buyer, basically the, the, the contract buyer on the option, basically. So that gives me the ability to execute that option. And if I do, which my option literally says in the bullets, hey, buyer, as in my company, will only execute this option if they find an investor that's interested in buying the deal or buying the contract or buying the real estate, whatever I'm going to option on. That's one of the circumstances where just to be very clear and disclose that up front, that this is not to like lead you on, Mr. Wholesaler that I'm working with. It's to tell you straight up, like, I'm only going to do this and move forward if I have an investor that wants to take over the contract. Now, let's talk about how the how this transfers to the end buyer. So are you then exercising your option and assigning the option to the end buyer? You get assigned. Or are you giving the end buyer an option? Yeah, no, you, you, we wouldn't want to. I personally don't think you should give the end buyer an option. I think you should give them a full-blown purchase sure. sale or an assignment. It just really depends on the deal structure. So if, if the... If the investor that has the property or contract that you're working with has a contract, and this is also, by the way, check with your attorneys and stuff like that. You know, this is not like legal of advice, of course, but just to give you an idea of what I've seen in New Jersey, where we've done business is like, if the contract holder, the buyer is in this case, my partner, the wholesaler, if that guy's the buyer, his company's a buyer, has a purchase and sale contract that is assignable, then I would basically have that contract assigned. But through me, I would basically get the, I would first get the assignment. I would sell that assignment or assign it again. Theoretically, right? Now, how you do the paperwork, it depends on who's involved and how everybody's going to get paid and stuff like that. So it could be a double assignment as in like he assigns it to me because I execute my option to get the assignment, basically assigned to me. And then I assign that assignment to somebody else. That's to be like buttoned up. If you want to do assignment, then assignment again. You know, as long as in New Jersey, at least, if it doesn't say it's not assignable, it's inherently assignable, whatever contract you sign. So it has to explicitly state that it's not assignable, which a lot of realtor ones, you know, they, they are not assignable. They said that right in them. Another way of doing it, though, is he has a contract to buy. He closes on the property. Obviously, he could do a double close, but or I can close on the property. You know, we had another one back in August that we actually it was it was three people that were involved. The the guys I partnered with that actually acquired the property closed on the property, held on to it for three weeks, and we sold it to an investor for one hundred forty thousand dollars more than what we bought it for, and we participated in that deal. That that's not really even a wholesale though, because basically we didn't do any work. We literally just took title, and a few weeks passed, and this guy used private money, hard money, whatever, and we sold it to him. So. It just depends on the deal structure, Matt. So I think you understand, like, and obviously if anyone has any questions, I'm happy to talk, you know, specifically one-to-one or whatever, whatever is the right way to follow up anyone that has the curiosity of that. But I think it just depends on the circumstances, you know? Yeah. And that's what I love is, is you could be so creative in this. Like you said, I mean, it could be a double closing. It's like, you could be essentially creating a new purchase agreement with, with you having the option to buy that one. Double. I mean, there's just so many ways to do joint it. Joint venture is so another one, you know, joint, joint venture agreement. So like, let's say you have a deal and I want to bring an investor, we can go into like a partnership just on one deal, right? Like we can just decide how we're going to split it up, that kind of thing. So, yeah, this is, this is really awesome. So kind of walk us through like, how did you learn this stuff? What kind of mentors did you have? Was it books? Was it just your own in, in, in genius? Or? No, no, not really, man. Honestly, I had a lot of I had a lot of mentors along the way. Um, there were mentors that were paid for education, so I put in about thirty thousand dollars my first mentorship program. It was an annual, like a year long thing. Um, guys were great. They're out of like I said, the West Coast, but the fact is, like they, I believe they're still doing it, but I'm not sure. I mean, I, if anyone is interested, obviously, I'm happy to make that connection. But the fact is, like. I've been out of that for the past almost eight years at this point. And the thing is they focused that group, at least when I was with them, focused a lot on acquisitions, which is understandable, but a lot of newer investors don't have the resources to do the acquisitions time and or money. And I've experienced it firsthand. So kind of my niche has been focusing on dispositions and, and acquisitions in terms of as a buyer, not so much as a wholesaler acquisition focused. You know, I look to buy property to fix and flip or buy it to hold. But I also looked at disposition on the wholesale side. I don't really look to do acquisition on the wholesale side. I'd rather leverage my networks 
fact, but the fact is in the midst of all that, yes, about mentors, I've met people that were local in the markets that I want to operate in. Those people to me are the best mentors. So like even my coaching clients that I have now that I coach with, I, one of the first things to say, find someone in your market that's already doing deals and be like their running buddy, basically, or find a way to lock arms with them, bring value to them. Because even, even with all my experiences, the way that awesome team I have and people that are on there helping coach as well, like we talked about David too, he's another person that helps us coach. I coach with his group. So like those folks are awesome, but the fact is they're not in the local market and this stuff is somewhat localized, right? You need to think like specifically my market, not quote unquote the market. That to me is like one of my my pet peeves, right? People say, how's the market doing? I'm like, well, where are you living? Like, and where are you buying? Because exactly. it depends on how specific you Well, and even within like a city, like yeah. the million dollar market is different than the $300,000 you know? market. Yeah. Those are very different. We cannot general, we can't generalize. You know what I mean? Like it just, it's not fair. Cause then it's just, it just muddies things up. So. I really want to dive deeper into this element of connecting with people, partnering. This is so profound. So, so Tim and I read a book called Who Not How, and it's completely like cemented the idea that it's so much better to be finding people that are doing the things that are part of your business instead of you doing everything. Like growing up in a middle-class family, like I felt like I had to learn everything, do anything, and then realizing as we become more successful, that's not how successful people do it. Right. They find their who's. So kind of explain how your business has evolved to where you're doing less and less yourself. No, I appreciate it. It's a great question. So, and I'm hundred percent with you about who, not how. In fact, that's one of the main coaching points I focus on even with brand new investors, because a lot of times it is the who that they need to find, not the how or the what, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, with us, I can give you a couple of examples. So I, I had the opportunity, the guy that was handling my title insurance for the wholesale deals, the first like 15 or 20 wholesale deals that we did. Um, I met him at the first ever networking event I ever attended in New Jersey. And he sat right next to me and we, we kind of headed off and we had the same mindset and a lot of things. And other than on top of the fact that he was also investor friendly in the sense that he knew assignments of contract and double closes and he was, he was cool with that, handling those deals. Then after doing business together for like a year, year and a half and doing some transactions and stuff, we realized that, you know, there was an opportunity for me to be his business partner in a new title insurance company because of some things that were going on with family and stuff like that on his side. And so he decided to step away from what he was doing with that title company, which was his family owned one. And they kind of decided to go different ways and we went into business, but it's like without him, I wouldn't be in the title insurance business, for example. I wouldn't know what to do with title insurance. I know about it, but I wouldn't be the guy to run it. You know what I mean? I'm not the operations and the title producer, that kind of thing. I don't understand all the compliance factors and things. He, he gets all that. He's been doing it for 30 years plus. So example there is like, you know, with a very minimal financial investment and with a little bit of time and focus, I've been able to add, you know, multiple million dollars in my life over the course of the rest of my life in that business, just from that one relationship um, as far as opportunity to get into something that I wouldn't otherwise have done. In this case, you're talking about maybe just a transaction, a real estate transaction. You kind of micro it down from like just a business level to like a transactional level. You could find a deal, for example, that you haven't been able to do, let's say a fix and flip, like I did also my first five fix and flips with a business partner that I learned really wasn't as qualified as I thought necessarily. It's okay. Like he's a great person. Like I said before, he just was more in the bigger type of deals, not really fixing up houses, more about developing from ground up. And so those first five transactions were quite a learning experience. But for me, if it wasn't for those first five, I might not have done the next, you know, 45 or whatever, because I wouldn't have gotten started. So really like opening up the gates of opportunity, usually in my world at least has come from great people that I've been able to meet and learn and build a relationship with. And so you mentioned, we both know David. So he's another example of that where just in the past year, I mean, we've done multiple things together, helped them refinance his portfolio of property. 
bought a bunch of equity, which is awesome. He gave me that opportunity. It's a crazy story, which we'll share maybe if I see. And I don't know if you're coming down to Florida for that event or not, or you guys can be down here, but that's coming up too. So it's he's got some amazing connections, though, he does. And he's all about connect, cultivate, collaborate. That's his mantra, right? So I 100% couldn't agree more. And so he's opened up opportunities on the coaching side of what we do and everything else as far as acquisition of property. So I can go on and on and tell you probably 10 more people, but those relationships, those who's, make a tremendous difference in everyone's business. And the question is like, for everybody listening, is like, who is that first person? Like, who is the next person? Who is the next five people? Like figure out where you're lacking. You know, I had a call this morning with somebody who's already done, you know, probably 30 or 40 fix and flips. And I think probably a bunch of wholesale as well. The thing is he doesn't feel like he's able to scale because he feels stuck as far as his own time. And literally he needs to think about, I told him it's either you do it or you delegate it. And if you want to do everything, do you can only do so much, but you could delegate a lot if you have the people to delegate it to. So that's figuring out like, what do I need? Who do I need? Who do I need really? And what do they have to yeah. do? You know? I want to talk to you about your relationship with David. And because you guys are in essence competitors, right. I just got back from an event in Las Vegas where you have two humongous guys, humongous companies, and they connect all the time and they share clients and resources and so on and so forth. So there's a growing trend that people aren't viewing their competition as competition. Can you tell me what are the benefits of essentially collaborating and even partnering with your competition? Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I feel like I'm not the only guy, but there's definitely less people, at least in New Jersey, that believe in collaboration over competition. So probably about three or four years ago, I literally put on my Facebook that quote, like collaboration over competition. And I got like a lot of, oh my God, like type emojis, not like a like or a, I got likes and loves, but I got a lot of like, really? Are the people coming to me talking about, no, it's too whatever, like just, just the network, for whatever reason, certain individuals in certain areas are just anti-collaboration. They just want to hold on to it. It's, and to me, it's a sense of greed, I guess. And I hate to say it like that, but it just speaking real, like I think the fact of trying to do everything on your own is actually a, a catch-22 type of issue because you could do whatever you could do, but you're going to cap out at some point on your own without collaborating. And so the idea of like opening up to what are others doing? Like, why am I going to ignore and put my blinders on and say, no one else around me is doing this better than me. That's kind of what I'd be doing. If I said, don't look to listen or learn or collaborate with, or find ways to add value to other people because they, everyone's on their own journey. So like David, for example, you know, he's heavily focused on like the burr process and acquiring property on seller finance and stuff like that and building a portfolio. I haven't done enough of that in my life that I really want to get more into. And so I saw an opportunity there to learn from him, but then also he gave me an opportunity to help coach with his group. And then that opened up the opportunity for me to learn more about how his group works and how his whole system works and his coaching program. So we borrowed some stuff and we collaborated and he shared with me because of who he is. Right. And he's a man of faith like myself. I don't know, you know, if we all share that or not, or your listeners or you know, a lot of folks of faith or whatever you follow. But fact is like, for us, like it's a deeper level. It's not just about a face level of like, let's just go do transactions. Like let's connect with people that actually get the fact that we have a lot more in common than we even talk about. And because of that, because we have that spiritual thing in common, because we have a mindset in common, because we have an abundance mindset, because we have networks that overlap, but a lot of times don't overlap. There's actually a beautiful thing when you lock arms with somebody and try to find ways. And I think what's intimidating for a lot of people is that they're feeling they're going to lose something. They're going to lose percentage of their profit. They're going to lose opportunities that otherwise would be just theirs to give to somebody else. Like I've made so much more than I've lost because of relationships, you know, and actually the biggest challenge is developing more of those relationships. It's hard to do because it takes a lot of focus and time and intention. So you got to be strategic of who do you invest time with? At least you yeah, ask me, like, I want to figure out, you know, who has what I need already that I can go build a relationship with and try to help them out with what they don't have and ultimately add value to one another. Cause then it's a nice synergy, right? It's like, it's a balance. 
if it's just like, give me, give me, give me, and I'm not going to give back, that's a problem. So like, I just heard somebody like another guy, Tim, who knows both David and, and I'm in his group as well, legacy family. So they are, um, they were talking about like basically the concept of masterminds, right? Like masterminds, a lot of masterminds are just people show up, they pay and it's to get and take, but the bet, the best masterminds are people are there to the go, go giver mentality, right? They go and give value. They look to add value, look to help others and, and collaborate and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's not just me. It's not just you. It's a lot of people are starting to catch on to this, I think, finally. And also the fact is the market's super competitive. So if you want to just go compete on your own, you're, you might be hitting your head against the wall a bunch of times about like doing deals because there's only so many deals available that make sense in the current environment for most markets, right? Not everywhere. Obviously there's pockets. We just talked about that before. Pockets of different types of opportunity. But if you're struggling to do deals, maybe look at who's doing deals now and figure out how can you work with that person, that group, and then just lock arms, you know? for at least a couple of deals. I want to talk to you about the coaching models because I'm super passionate. I was a former math teacher and I really want to help people in their investing journey. That's why we do the podcast. So your guys' coaching structure, essentially you and David working together, you guys are able to put out like 10, 10 ways a week that people can learn. Like, can you kind of dissect, like what are you seeing that's working in the coaching space that's actually leading to action? Because a lot of the online courses are like 90 to 95% don't complete them. They don't, they don't work for the person. What is working for you guys? So, yeah, I mean, um, you know, just, and it, and again, David's awesome. And we have nothing but respect for one another as far as, you know, he and I talk like almost every day and we talk pretty consistently. So uh, he has his own coaching group and then I, we have our own coaching group. But I basically participate in his group and he participates in mine. So we do kind of joint venture that way, right? Just to be clear. But at the end of the day, I mean, we learn from each other. We help each other. We sort of add value. But the fact what we know is working is frequency. Right. Frequency is important because if somebody comes in once a week or once a month to just pop in, have a conversation for 30 minutes, an hour and then pop away, what happens is what do they do after that? You know, what does that individual, that coaching client, that person looking to grow, that student, that learner, whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, member of a group, whatever it is, what are they accomplishing between sessions? That's the biggest challenge. Like we cannot track that without having like maybe some type of accountability structure. So from what I understand, you know, my, my program was once or twice. There was at one point just once a week group sessions and we'd have once every so often, depending on the demand of the client, one-on-ones. I've always had like some kind of blend of groups and one-on-ones because I believe in one-on-one attention is just necessary sometimes kind of breaking through things and kind of getting somebody riled up and be able to do it in private, not to do it in front of a group. Sometimes it takes a little bit of that privacy to have that conversation be real. Um, but ultimately... In a group setting, it's nice because you have accountability. So you have people that are other peers of the clients and people in the group seeing each other, hearing each other's stories, getting inspired by, getting encouraged by, getting empowered by, that kind of thing. Accountability grows. And then you add in frequency of like consistent meetings, right? Once every day, once every week, uh, whatever that cadence looks like. For us, it's like multiple times a day, which sounds a little crazy, but it's not just me. Right? I have a staff. I have my own staff and I have a team of coaches that actually help coach with us. So we have a mindset and mental toughness coach. We have a multifamily syndication coach. We have a getting the deal closed and title insurance is my business partner coach. He's got a special guest focused on some stuff today. Actually, as we're talking right now, they're doing a talk about acquisitions with using different strategies, off market, on market acquisition stuff. And then we have like with myself, I focus on, on private lending, joint venturing, deal structuring, wholesale, fix and flip, that kind of stuff. That's where my specialty is. And then David, he focuses on like what he's really good at, which is a lot of things, but acquisitions for Burr, and seller financing and just, you know, again, joint venture collaboration, that kind of thing. 
So, and then we have other, we have another coach named Rich. Rich has been working with me for a number of years where he basically focuses on the private money lending. Yes. But also like how to grow a business. He's been an entrepreneur for almost 30 years as well outside of real estate. So like there's an entrepreneurism in the, the business development side of things and figuring out the structures and the teams and the outsourcing, that kind of thing. So really having that blend of all those different things in one unified program where people have access to live and then they also can check the replays out. They can go back and listen to it as if it was a course, but maybe skim through it or listen to the part that matters the most and then make that the staple of it, which is what it is now. And then have the one-on-ones we've blended that into it to where that just adds additional focus of attention and like individualism to one person's you know, situation. Um, that's worked the best for us and, and also our clients. We had one client actually back in August join us and close their first deal within two weeks, which is pretty uncommon, but that was an acquisitions of a rental property. And then we've had other clients, unfortunately, that have been with us for a few months that just haven't hit traction yet um, for a number of different reasons. What I could say is a lot of times the reason people in general, not even within our group or anything out there, but they don't hit people don't hit traction because they're too disjointed. They don't have enough focus, right? You need to focus on like one strategy, one place or a few places and like get really dialed into it and give it a shot. You know, if you get the shiny object syndrome stuff, which I can all, we can all probably relate to this. We all, we all have different things being presented to us. Um, we have to control our focus, right? And our time and our energy. So we have to think like, if I'm only gonna try this for a week or two and I don't get the result that I want like that, instant gratification, that's none of the strategies that I coach on, which is wholesale, fix and flip or buy and hold. None of those things take a couple of weeks, generally speaking, to get done end to end. Right. You might be able to buy a property in a couple of weeks, but then you have hey, this sort of the project, renovate it, place tenants, manage property, whatever. Wholesale, it's like, well, I might get a contract in a couple of weeks, but I got to sell the contract. Maybe another couple of weeks. Could you theoretically, you know, close a deal in a few days? Yeah. If you have a contract that exists already with someone else and you have an investor who wants to buy that contract, you could literally make a few phone calls and close a deal. Yeah. But that's just not the common. Super, super quick. Yeah. Yeah. So walk me through, like, if I'm a new investor or a newer investor. And I come into a program that's like yours that has eight, 10 times a week that there's interactions. What, what is the prescribed path? Like, should they go to all 10? And give me a basic context of how those are structured. Is it like you're, you're walking through each of the parts of the process over and over again? Like, what are you seeing that is actually creating the evolutions for the ones that are uh, achieving success? Yeah. So when we first started... When we first started the coaching with the Growth Collective, which is what it's called, it, it was a two times a week. And this was not that long ago. So we, we've evolved it in a rather short period of time. We had two times a week group sessions, which are Tuesdays and Thursdays. One of the most important ones is the what I call the hot seat, which I also got borrowed from David's uh, model, which is basically having somebody raise their hand and say, hey, I got a deal or I have a scenario I want to dive deeper on. I want to get really intensely focused on this particular issue or this particular deal and see if it makes sense and how do, how do I break free from the part I don't know about or what I don't feel comfortable on. That is like a must, if you ask me. Now, mind you, you know, we can recommend certain things. In some cases, we require to hit certain things and we offer guarantees. So there are requirements for clients to attend certain meetings to get that guarantee to kind of trigger because we know if they just sign up and, and pay the cost to be a part of the program, it's an investment, but it's still an expense for them. They, they don't, you know, it's not a uh, investment like you get at a return no matter what if you do no work. It's not a private money lending thing, right? This is like, I'm gonna invest time and money to go do something here. So they got to attend certain meetings. That's part of our, you know, depending on whether it be startup or scale up, there's two, two iterations, there's different required ones. But I would say at a minimum, like half of the meetings are super viable every single week at, for anybody, right? It doesn't matter if you're coming in with brand new or your experience because we got mindset, multifamily syndication and hot seat, plus like our general and getting the deal closed. Like those ones stand out to me as like the musts. Then it's like, all right, well, if I'm gonna go ahead and actually try to scale a business and every dumb business, 
I definitely want to be in the ones about outsourcing and team building and growing a business and placing people in positions to run the company for me, not just doing it all myself. But that's on somebody that's actually looking to scale up, right? And then if I'm looking to do things like I want to have an extra level of accountability, we have a group accountability call as well, where literally all we do is go around the room for two to five minutes. People read what they did for the past week to the whole group. And they just say, hey, you know what, Matt, last week we talked and I said I was going to do X, Y, and Z. I got that done or I didn't get that done. Here's what I know what I have to do this week. I'm going to get caught up on this thing. I'm going to do that thing. Okay, and we go to the next person. Great, awesome, good job. Keep it going. Next person. So we're just going to go around the room and do like a virtual accountability check-in. Um, and then, you know, what's most important in our program, that's all really important. That's all like the foundations, but really the one-on-ones in some way are going to be super important because, you know, it, there's a lot of things that can be just like addressed, like we're talking now one-to-one, like shortcut it in terms of a conversation versus waiting until someone else or even that client brings it up in a group setting because you can only go so deep in a group conversation. When you get one-on-one, that's where like some specific things are addressed and handled. And so, I mean, I know you asked me like the prescriptive model. So we do have a 30-day accountability check-in, which is a 30-day challenge, but it basically is the first 30 days for every client. They go through that. They get access to that first. And it's like step-by-step, day-by-day, do this, do this, do this, watch these videos, read this thing, listen to that, do this next thing, call that person, speak, you know, that kind of thing. So the first 30 days is accountability. But then from there, everybody kind of goes and graduates different directions, depending on where they're at. Some people do kind of skip through that 30 day because they don't need that. They already have existing business. They're coming in for a specific solution. So I'll give you one quick example. There's a gentleman named Adam, who was a client of mine, and he was referred to me from one of the coaches we have uh, some time ago as somebody who's in the space already, but he needed some help getting some of the stuff set up for his businesses, which is real estate related, but it's not investment so much as it's like construction related. And so we had two one-on-ones and in the first two one-on-ones, he felt like it was only 30 minutes a piece, by the way. So about an hour worth of time. And it's not because of me, man. I just, because of the things we talked about and the stories and he shared and the vulnerability he gave and stuff like that, we got deeper, deep enough to know, okay, do X, Y, and Z, consider these three things, these five things. He went out there and made some phone calls. He basically turned into a whole new profit center, his construction business. And he put up it himself. He added another $400,000 a contract, which is design build in like a couple of weeks. So like that kind of return happens if somebody has an existing business. I mean, the guy already runs a multiple seven-figure business. So you have somebody like that, that's one of my clients. You have somebody like Ryan, who's a coach for us, who also has over $100 million under management. I was coaching him more on like accountability for himself as a, as a man of God and a man for his family himself. Different things, not just like getting business results. We want to all get business results. We also want to keep integration the rest of our life. So a big part of that is like I coach experienced investors also on like how to keep it all you know, running smoothly for your life to feel like it's actually happening the way, you know, we're being intentional, we're having fulfillment, not just success. As Tony Robbins says, it's the art of fulfillment, right? It's not just about the science of step by step by step to get to success. How many times have we heard it, man? You know, people get money and then they, they lose everything else. It's not what we all want. We want an integrated, unified life, you know? Absolutely. So just to kind of do an overview. So you've got accountability, you've got the hot seat for deep dives. How much is it like instructing on things like acquisition, like the JV? Is that maybe 20%, 50% of the program? So acquisition, we're big on relationship-based acquisition for my own story right. reasons. And and people, yeah. you know, different coaches have different perspectives. As are we too. Right. Yeah. That, that resonates deeply. Yeah. Right. So I would say, yeah, I mean, if I were to break it down, I'd say 10 to 20% of acquisitions, the biggest challenge, people get stuck in the analysis phase. Like literally they get stuck in yeah. analysis paralysis. So that's why the hot seat and a lot of the questions that come up in the sessions are going to be doing analysis type stuff. Like how do I calculate this thing? How do I estimate repairs that way? How do I calculate comps? How do I put it all together? We use a thing called deal check. So runyournumbers.com is our like affiliate link, but we use that basically to send people 
And that's going to be a one source of truth. So every deal we look at on the hot seat goes through that system. And now I know when I'm looking at it, I see what the levers are. What's the LTC, the loan to value, loan to cost? And what's the LTV, the loan to value? What's the interest rate looking like? What's, is this a burr? Are we doing a purchase, renovate, and then refinance it later after we rent it out? Or are we just going to do a rental right off the bat? Like those kinds of things, it's getting that into one place and then training and coaching on that process. That then creates certainty for clients to then say, okay, I can go out there and make an offer now. Because that's the exit, right? So I'm a big, I'm big on process. Before real estate investment, I, I was at Johnson & Johnson. So I spent almost 10 years of my life doing process type stuff and IT stuff. And so Lean Six Sigma is like my background. I'm certified as whatever it is. You probably know what I mean. So it's like looking at like, okay, inputs, out, inputs, process, outputs, right? So like I look at every step and say it's acquisitions is getting a lead generated. It's doing analysis on that lead. It's then making the offer, going back and forth a few times and ultimately getting a contract. That's the acquisitions process in general to get a deal under contract, right? And then I go from there. It's like, all right, well, then I move into like, how do I fund this? get my insurance, get my contractor set up as scope of work, lender, all that kind of stuff. But the first four steps, find, you know, analyze, negotiate, get in a contract. It's not that hard to find deals, quote unquote. It's like, I mean, say deals because everybody's preference is different. It, you could find what might be a deal. What it is actually a deal is a different story. Preference versus availability is another thing we coach on. Like, hey, what you might want to prefer may not even exist. But if what you're looking for does exist, those are not hard to find. It's a question of how much work you want to put into the sourcing process. And then it's like analysis, though, is where people get hung up. It's like, okay, I found someone sent me a deal. Like the, the whole seller sent me a lead. Like, looks awesome. What do I do next? Well, figure out how to crunch the numbers. And how do you make sure you mitigate those risk factors? And then people get stuck there, not because of analysis paralysis just itself, but because there's so many facets, right? Matt, there's like multiple things. So breaking them through from there is typically where I spend most of the time, me, myself, and my coaches. And then from there, it's like offers, right? Then it's like, oh, how do I negotiate? That's that's interesting too, but that's not usually as much because it's just, you know, nowadays it's, it's kind of binary. It's like either take it or leave it. The seller is going to be like either happy or not happy. It's, it's a little bit of, it's a gray area for sure. You can negotiate, yes, but sellers still think that the property's worth way more than it's worth. And so you're not going to, I don't recommend people continuously just pound the seller or keep falling up and stuff like that. And wholesalers, honestly, there's only so much spread that they're making in a deal. So you can only get so far anyway. But then you move into, contracts people get hung up about legal you know like and that's well could just call an attorney have someone in your corner as a legal rep to just look at the deal when i move from there and you talk about the, the structure and the prescription part it's like then it gets into once i have a deal on a contract that's exciting yes but if i'm wholesaling i'm doing dispo and that's how do i source buyers right that's a whole other thing a lot of our clients are looking to build up rental portfolios though which is where i'm at the same level that's why david has well been inspiration for me really focusing on wealth creation, right? Not so much as income and, and growing an income. And so the Burr process is predominantly what I coach a lot on now. And so knowing how to fund those deals, how to get the lending, how to get, you know, commercial lending. So you don't have to use all your personal credit and all the things that come into play, like this DTI, income verification, W2s, all that stuff. That's a big part of what I focus on with my clients and getting to understand how lenders think and how they underwrite loans. Because if a lender is going to underwrite it, that's that's who's in control of whether your deal closes or not, basically, once you get the deal in the contract. Because if you don't have all the money yourself, the lender is going to determine, and the appraiser actually, right? The appraiser is actually one that controls the most because then the lender goes off from the appraisal typically. So anyway, that's some of the stuff that we cover, man. And we get people to where they know what to do and they actually can do it. And obviously, accountability comes into play, not just on education, but actually going and doing it. I'm big on action taking. Implementation. Yeah over education all day, you know, like that's fail forward is basically a big mantra for us. Love it. So what is your vision for the coaching in the business over the next 12 to 18 months? What are you hoping to accomplish? 
Yeah, I mean, we are um, sort of converging into whereas like we started off wholesaling um, and we started that business going on in Jersey and also Florida. We then got in a fix and flip and then started the title insurance company. We have a brokerage as well. We have a lot of different things that are related. So converging into one thing and then the lending side, I spent about a year and change inside of a fund and then left that fund because it just was consuming my rest of my life and became problematic from the fulfillment side of things, actually, right? My, my whole day and night was being consumed, working late hours to get deals closed for my borrowers, which I enjoy doing, but I can't trade that. So fundamentally decided to step away. And I still have access to those groups, though, the capital sources. And so real direct lending, that is like our brand, if you would, around private lending. So effect effectively bringing it all together and then, of course, the coaching is the growth collective. So that that growth collective brand, if you would, is going to and real direct lending. Those two are going to integrate into the kind of one thing in the 12 to 18 month period of time to have a place where people can go to learn, to get access to inventory, to understand how to analyze that inventory, to get coached through it, and actually how to get the funding for it and ultimately close and run their project successfully. That's effective what we're building. We're trying to become one of the few, if not one of the only, like one of like the one basically in the markets that we operate in, New Jersey, Florida, soon to be other markets, Colorado is kind of percolating a little bit with some people out there that we have. And with our clients basically looking to joint venture, not just to coach, but actually be willing to jump into deals with people that have a good opportunity that need that, that need that extra support in a deal, not just like kind of asking questions. Because a lot of programs are really educational. The concern, I guess, is that on scale, like somebody who's not doing real estate deals, they're concerned about trying to partner up because they don't have the capacity or the interest in growing their investment side. They're just looking to grow education. With us, it's almost the opposite. We want to grow our deal flow through coaching and education as well with our clients so that they can learn and help us do more together if they want to. Or if they don't, hey, at least we help them. We feel good. You know, They participate. They get what they need. And we work together some other way. So that's kind of like flipping it around, right? The opposite as to what others have done. Um, not looking to create a school per se, as much as I want to create a group of people doing deals together, essentially. Community. Community. Yeah. 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 Douglas J. Beck, thank you so much for coming on our show. I loved how you said collaboration over competition. Like, I think this is becoming clear. The model starting to show itself that like creating communities of people that are growing in the same direction, finding deals, working together, like is the way to create financial freedom the fastest. So we're just so thankful that you're sharing these strategies, these coaching ideas with us. So guys, if you're out there listening, like take this action on this today, like go, go into a more collaborative mindset over a competitive mindset. Think about how can you do deals with doing less work so that you can exponentially move faster towards financial freedom. Share whatever you took down with someone you know so they can hold you accountable because freedom is acquired one action at a time. Guys, if you take that action, before you know it, you're gonna be free. So thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode.